Good morning. I moved my, I moved my microphone up, so make more of an impression. Thank you. We are, um, we're at the end of this short, short consideration of uh, the Trinity, and I hope you've been as blessed by this as I have. Um, before we start the consideration of the last chapter, I mentioned at the end of last week the question that Gary had had one evening at dinner about, well, you've got the Father and the Son, and there's a, those are identifiable family roles. And you've got the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit fit into the family? I just was curious if anybody went home and thought about that and had any thoughts about it. Because he got me to thinking, as, as uh, they left that night, and I've been thinking about it ever since. Brother Frank, do you have any thoughts on it? Here is the, the best thing I can come up with. If we think about how the Spirit has been described, and I think the way the Spirit has been described in this study is entirely biblical. The Spirit is the enlivener, right? The Spirit is the enlivener. The Spirit is the... the the life of the family, in a sense. The Spirit is the bonder. It's inflaming the love of the Father for the Son and the Son for the Father in a way that makes it burst out. And we even have Jesus saying, I have to go away so that you get this. So that you get what the Father and I have had for all eternity. That you get this enabler, this inflamer, this cheerleader, this true lover. Does that make sense? Does that, does that ring true? Uh, Anybody that has liked this study, um, there are a couple of other books that I found are really, really good. One uh, is by James Torrance, and it's called Worship, Community, and the Triune God of Grace. And we've seen and heard those themes as we've been talking through this. And... I'm going to read you something real quick from this. He's in this, he's talking about the different ways of thinking about God. It's a lot like what Brother Reeves has done in this, in this book we've been looking at. But 
He says, at the center of the New Testament stands not our religious experience, not even our faith or repentance or decision, however important these are, but a unique relationship between Jesus and the Father. Christ is presented to us as the Son, living a life of union and communion with the Father in the Spirit, presenting Himself in our humanity through the eternal Spirit to the Father on behalf of mankind. So that idea of this Father-Son oneness. Jesus says, you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. He constantly is saying in John, I am. They got that. They got that. It, it drove some of them crazy. But they understood what he meant. And you have the Holy Spirit that is that is inflaming, is reinforcing, is stirring up love, and then is the person of the Godhead who is gifted to us so that we can know the love of the Father for the Son. So the best I could come up with, Gary, is that the Holy Spirit is the true lover, the family bonder. We have been made joint heirs with Christ. We are adopted children. We now, and it wells up in our heart through the Spirit, the ability to say, Abba, Father. Daddy, Papa. That only happens by this, by this true lover. So that's the best I can do, Gary. We, we, can, we can marinate on that probably for the rest of our lives. But I think if we do that, if we marinate in that for the rest of our lives, what is that going to do? It's going to inflame in our hearts the love of the Father and the Son. That's what the Holy Spirit is about. So, this last chapter, in my opinion, there is no need for a subtitle, and there is no subtitle for this last chapter. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? which is a quote from the Psalms. And he begins the chapter by talking about what the anti-theist or atheist argument is. If there's somebody that wants to summarize that argument, it's fairly straightforward. Anybody want to... Want to summarize it? Basically, he's a ruler. It's the pagan concept 
He is the all-seeing, all-supervising, all-controlling God. And in their mind, that's a totalitarian monster. That's Kim Jong-il. I don't want me any of that. And think about it. Think about where we started this, this class. And then it goes all the way back to when we talked in Isaiah about the other gods. Or back in Genesis when we talked about the other gods. Pagans and you were some of those, right? We were some of those. Pagans manufacture gods. And they manufacture gods in ways that they would operate if they were God. They would control everything and they would make sure that nobody ever got out of line. Why do, good, why do bad things happen to good people? The common lament. If I were God, that wouldn't ever happen. How many times have we heard God accused? How many times has that thought seeped into our minds? I was running things, it wouldn't operate this way. Now these anti-theists are saying, I don't like that. Now I think it's a little bit ironic when you think about Christopher Hitchens, who he mentions here, or Richard Dawkins, it's kind of ironic that they reject this arbitrary totalitarian God and replace that arbitrary totalitarian God with arbitrary blind chance. Everything happens because it just happens. But what is the rest of the narrative of all evangelical atheists. Things are getting better and better. That selection always improves over the long haul. That one day we won't need all this opiate of the masses, as Karl Marx called it, because we will have evolved our thinking beyond that. So they reject this idea of a judgmental ruler. But the good news is, that's not who God is. That's not the God presented by Trinity. And that's the key point. That's the key point of this study. That's the key point of this book. Why was St. Patrick enraptured by the idea of the Trinity because he understood what it meant. He understood the love that it represented. 
he understood the flame that came out of it. So on page 110, God is fundamentally the most kind and loving father. And he says, in effect, or in fact, that was what Christopher Hitchens said he had looked for his entire life. A warm household to live in. That's what is depicted by the Trinity. That's why having a Trinitarian view aids our evangelism, aids our dealing with our neighbors, aids us to get re-centered when we get off track and we want to turn God into a ruler. And he makes the point that the advance of atheism, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, he just notices that the advance of atheism coincides with the relegation of the Trinity to sort of a curiosity on the, on the sidebar of Christianity. That makes some sense to me. And even, even the way that, that the gospel was presented was often God as ruler, Jesus as Savior, basically wiping out God's beef with us. And while that's true in a certain level, that is in no way all the story. And it distorts things. It almost gets us started on exactly the wrong basis. We know, and, and, and Paul in Romans says, the, the pagan mind, the worldly mind, is opposed to God. And it's opposed to God because God is viewed in the popular mind. And sometimes it seeps into our own thinking as a raging, arbitrary egomaniac who is poised to kill happiness. The buzz killer in, in popular language. But we know God's not like that. We know in Second Peter, Peter says, God's not willing that any should perish. Psalms 86. But you, O oh Lord, are gracious and merciful, slow to anger. God talks with Abraham in Genesis 15 
and says, you know, I'm going to bless the world through your, through your descendants. They'll be as numerous as the stars of the heaven. But they're going to be enslaved for 400 years while I'm trying to get the Amorites to come to their senses, the Canaanites. That's a merciful God. That's a God who's slow to anger. Numbers 14, the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He will, know, he will by no means clear the guilty, but he is loving and he will forgive under certain circumstances. On page 111 is the Karl Barth statement talking about the beauty of God in Trinity. The triunity of God is the secret of His beauty. If we deny this, we at once have a God without radiance and without joy, and I love this little parenthetical phrase, and without humor. A God without beauty, losing the dignity and power of real divinity. He also loses his beauty. But if we keep to this, that the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we cannot escape, we cannot escape the fact, either in general or in detail, that apart from anything else, God is also Beautiful. And then on page 112, prominent among the attributes of the Trinity, that is the divine characteristics we have encountered, has been that of divine mercy, which among the gods would rarely appear high up on a list of attributes in a natural account of Godhood. Mercy is the outworking in fallen time in history of the action of a God for whom love of the other is central to his being. That's good news. As Christians, we have to be clear and specific. We have to be internally clear and specific so we can be externally clear and specific about what God, which God we believe in. We describe that God the way the Bible describes Him. As the loving, unified community which is Trinity. Otherwise, we're worshiping idols of our own devising. Page 113, triune being changes the meaning of terms. Terms that are ascribed to gods generally. It changes, changes the meanings of those terms when it's applied to our God in Trinity. Terms like glory, and majesty, 
terms like wrath. Who is like the Lord our God? The one who sits enthroned on height, who stoops down to look, stoops down to look at the heavens and the earth. He gets down to look at us closely. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. That is a different kind of God than a God of our devising who wants to zap what's out of line. Compassion for the lowly rather than self-absorbed contemplation. Doesn't this line up with what we're talking about? Father, Son, Spirit, this inflaming process, this process of stirring up love. Compassion for the lowly rather than self-absorbed contemplation is the proper characteristic of divine majesty in the Hebrew Scriptures. Indeed, and that's the Hebrew Scriptures, that's, not, that's the Old Testament. Indeed, for such displays of compassion are the outworking of the eternal majesty of the Father in His love for the Son. So, we have a change in terminology, a change in the understanding of terminology of words like God's holiness, God's wrath, and God's glory. All gods, all gods are talked about in those terms. All gods. Question is, what's meant by the terms? Holiness. As he says here, and I like the way, he's, he's so English in the way he says certain things. It's not prickliness and prudery. And he makes that statement and got the t-shirt. He says, have you ever heard somebody say, yes, God is loving, but he's also holy. As if those two things were in opposition to each other. That holiness, the realm of holiness excludes love. And the realm of love <laughs> excludes holiness. I've heard it said, I've said it. On page 115, the technical definition of holiness is set-apartness. But again, the question is, all gods are known to be holy in the sense of set-apart. But how is our God set apart. And he talks about the fact that when we say that, our self-idolatrous mind has a tendency to see itself as basically innocent. Most of our cultural messages are all messages of innocence. 
You're not responsible. You were born that way. You're not responsible. Your environment made you that way. Every man, yeah. So we see in that context, we have a tendency to make ourselves the center and sort of the hero of the story. And so in that sense, if that's how we are operating, then we are going to turn God, the God, into a God, a little God, a removed, judgmental God. But if, as he says, if I am the cruel, responsible, selfish, vicious one, that God's set-apartness takes on a different meaning. Holiness is divine beauty. God's holiness is about loving. God's holiness is about agreeability, purity among this community of the Godhead. This is a community. It's social. It's outgoing. So, the Spirit who is given to us is all about creating that kind of holiness. Loving, pure, agreeable. The kind of relationship that's in the Godhead. The Spirit is about what? Inflaming love. The Spirit is the true lover. The Spirit is the family bonder. The Spirit is showing us the Father and the Son. The Spirit is incorporating in us a growing appreciation, a growing identification with that love. That's why. That's why. You know, Jesus is asked, what are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God. What? Love your neighbor. You can't reverse those things. The Spirit is inflaming our love for the Father and the Son. The outworking of that is that we take on their characteristics. We are the outward-looking, excited, loving pure, agreeable people that have an attractiveness about them. But it's not our attractiveness. It's the attractiveness of the Father and the Son by the Spirit's guidance and the Spirit's enabling. So holiness is the clarity and the purity of the love of the Godhead. So our prayer has to be that that love becomes ever more clear and ever more pure inside of us. And then we come to holiness, page 117. 
Leviticus 19 says, Be holy because I am holy. And he's saying, and this is Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, by the way, is the neighbor love chapter, interestingly enough. If you look in Leviticus 19, Leviticus 18 has a lot of really gnarly stuff in it. Then Leviticus 19 is this is what God's people look like. They're holy in the way God is holy. It says, don't turn to idols. It says, bring your fellowship offering, your peace offering, in a desire for holiness. This isn't like trading with gods. You do, I do this, you do that. That's the pagan deal. God, you've got to do this because I did that. I gave my children the fruit of my fertility to the fire, therefore bring on the bumper crops and the prosperity, the first prosperity gospel, so to speak. Different deal for us. We love God in the way that He loves us. We will love people in the way that we are loved. The unanimity, unanimous, the unanimity of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. There's no evolved holiness. God didn't get more holy as time went by. The Son is not a more enlightened, better version of a cruel ruler father. The Father is not stern and the Son chill. God has not gotten better with age. That's why Jesus says, I am. When you've seen me, you're looking at the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Holy Spirit testifies and teaches that. So, going on in Leviticus 19, what comes out of that peace offering thing. It's, I'm kind to the deserving poor. I'm kind to the destitute outsider. I'm not going to steal from or take advantage of anyone. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to oppress. And then there's God's wrath. So here in the midst of all this love talk, all gods, what? All gods have holiness. They have, right, set-apartness. All gods have glory. Talk about that in a minute. All gods have wrath. 
But if God wasn't triune, his wrath would be like the other gods. Vindictive. Arbitrary. God's wrath is not at a whim. God is angry at evil because he is anti-evil. He is love. First John, there's not any darkness at all in God. It is mutually exclusive. There is no evil at all in God. Purity can't tolerate evil. God is called, what, the father of light. Now, on page 118, in summarizing, it says, real love can't be indifferent to evil. And it gives us a sidebar, and I won't go into it, but Miroslav Volf is a theologian from Croatia, and he lived through those things we used to watch on television. And he had family wiped out, and he saw injustice reigning. And it kind of reminds us of the imprecatory psalms. And in Revelation 6, you've got the saints who are martyred saying, when will you avenge us? God is slow to anger. In his loving kindness, he bears with us. He bears with others. But because he is love, because of what love is, there comes a day of reckoning. There comes a day of wrath. That's part of, that's part of a gospel message. There is a hell. God's anger is holy. It's how his love reacts to evil. And I love this at the end of that section. The father loves his son and so hates sin, which is the ultimate rejection of his son. He loves his children and so hates their oppression. He loves his world and so hates all evil in it. In his love, he roots out sin in his people, disciplining them to free them from captivity to it. The wrath of the triune God, this is middle of page 120. The wrath of the triune God is the proof of the sincerity of his love. If that's the first time you've heard that, you probably have to go think about it. Like I did. His love is not mild-mannered and limp. It is livid, potent, 
and committed. I thought that was an awfully powerful statement. The pattern of God in Scripture is that of repeated patience and grace leaving the way open for repentance. But there comes a point of judgment because love can't dwell in unity with evil. And then finally, God's glory. And the idea here is, are love and glorification mutually exclusive? In other words, is true love anti-ego and glory then is ego? It's about ego. That's the tendency. That's the tendency. That's a place that it's really easy for our minds to go when we think about the jealousy of God. When we think about God desiring His glory. In Ephesians 1, it says, The Father has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. So the question is, is God craving applause? Well, the word glory means heaviness or weightiness. That's the literal expression of it. As I was reading that, the term that came to me, it isn't a real word, is God's glory is his deep downness. What God is deep down is glorious. It's what he is fundamentally. He doesn't need inflating. He doesn't need outside applause. His deep downness is the bedrock of his identity. When we give God the glory, we simply ascribe to him what is already his, declaring him to be as he truly is. And think about that Ephesians passage. Think about that Ephesians passage. The Father has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ. The redemptive gift in order that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be for the praise of His glory. The praise of His glory is about what He has given. His glory, His deep downness is giving. Explosive giving. The deep downness is bright. It shines outward. It illuminates. In Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel, in starting his prophecy, is talking about the personal light and the radiance and the brilliance of God. And on page 122, we won't talk about this this morning, there are examples from Scripture where that is described. 
what glory feels like. And then the Father, this is page 123. The Father gives out life and being to the Son. The Father and the Son breathe out the Spirit by the Spirit. And the Spirit enlivens love in the Godhead. The Spirit breathes out life into, remember Ezekiel's prophecy, dead bones. Breathes out life into dead bones. What? Enabling fellowship. Enabling fellowship with the Father and the Son and with the world. God's glory is about giving, not taking. He is glory. The received glory that God gives is the stuff he has given. He gets glory when we're being changed into the image of Christ. That's giving God glory. That's where he takes his pleasure. That's where his his personal glory that he doesn't need to gain from anybody, that's where it's shown. Mid-24, that glory will make itself manifest even in judgment. The banishing of darkness. And the Malachi 4 statement, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or branch will be left to them. But for you who... Revere for you who fear my name. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And we already thought about those saints in Revelation 6. Lord, when will you banish evil? That's the gospel in the Old Testament. God's loving forbearance will give way to God's loving cleansing. For the sake of those who have suffered and endured to the end, because they know him for who he is, and they love him for it. The same spiritual son, this is Jonathan Edwards, the same spiritual son whose beams are most comfortable and beneficial to believers will burn and destroy unbelievers. Then in Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel saying God's radiance is like a shining light, but it's also like a man. 
And see, this is the solution to the problem of the end of days. What does Jesus say is the representation of his deep downness? He says, a seed dying in order to bear fruit. Here's a glory that no other God would want. Other gods need worship. This is from the book. They need worship and service and sustenance. Stuff given to them. But this God needs nothing. He has life in himself, so much so that he is brimming over. His glory is indescribably good, overflowing and self-giving. On the cross, Christ, the glory of God, puts to death all false ideas of God. And as he cries out to the Father, he offers himself up by the Spirit That's Hebrews 9. So, to conclude, who God is drives everything. What's the human problem? The human problem is making gods in our own image pitifully trying to meet our own needs. Pitifully trying to set things right. Without Trinity, we end up with the wrong God, a removed ruler. Without Trinity, we end up with the wrong Jesus, an evolved God who only judges the religious. Without the Trinity, we end up with the wrong spirit, self-affirmation and comforting our idolatry. A spirit who gives glory to us, not God. I pray we'll think about this. I pray we'll wrestle with it where we need to. This has been such a personally beneficial study, a blessing. If, if you're interested in other thinking about this, I mentioned James Torrance, Worship Community and the Triune God of Grace. It's wonderful. This one is really cool. This is Peter Lightheart, Traces of the Trinity, Signs of God in Creation and Human Experience. This is really cool. You know, we, we started out talking about people trying to think about how the Trinity is depicted in, in reality. And so things like you know, shamrocks and three forms of water and things of that nature. This is a little deeper than that. And I don't mean deep in a way that can't be understood. I mean, it's clearer pictures in a way. So for whatever it's worth, uh, let me pray as we conclude this study. Father, we are all here only because of your goodness and your love radiating outward. We can only think good thoughts because you give them. 
And Lord, you have given us the knowledge of the Trinity to make deeper, to make richer who you are, who Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is. To not only cause us to understand, but to feel this unanimous, pure love that has existed from all eternity. A love that needed nothing because it had everything and yet gave everything to us. And Lord, I pray that we will all be deeply impressed that our souls will magnify and glorify the deep downness of the Trinity. In Jesus' name, amen.